This is Books for Breakfast, a podcast where we talk about books and writing. I'm Enda Wiley. And I'm Peter Sir. And you're all very welcome to this morning's show. Today we're looking east. We'll be reviewing the latest collection of stories by Bucharest-based writer Philip O'Kelly. And our Toaster Challenge guest is Prague-based poet Justin Quinn, whose recent collection Shallow Seas has been published by Gallery Press. So the coffee's made, the toast is on, and the books are on the table. Well, Peter, I wanted to begin today's programme by paying tribute to the poet Ivan Boland, who died on the 27th of April a year ago in 2020. And um, I think it's very touching that the Casey Boland family, Poetry Ireland and Stanford University recently paid tribute to her. They had a special event um, with writers including Tobias Wolf, Paula Meehan and also Roshan Kelly, whose debut um, collection of poetry, Mercy, came out in 2020 with Blood Axe. Um, For people listening, I'm sure they know, but uh, just to say, Van was born in Dublin in 1944. She was the daughter of a diplomat and a painter, and she spent her girlhood in London and New York. She returned to Ireland. She went to secondary school in Killiney, and later she went on to Trinity College in Dublin. And even when she was a student, she was publishing... um, from a very early age, she published her first collection, 23 Poems, in 1962. And her early work, I think, is informed by her experiences as a young wife and a mother and her growing awareness of the troubled role of women, which she felt was apparent in Irish history and culture. And in the light of that, I just wanted to read um, a poem which I've always loved by her called Energies. And it's about her time as a young mother And I'm going to read it from her new collected poems published by Carcanet. Energies. This is my time, the twilight closing in, a hissing on the ring, stove noises, kettle steam and children's kisses, but the energy of flowers. Their faces are so white, my garden daisies. They are so tight-fisted, such economies of light. In the dusk, they have made hay. In a banked radiance, in an acreage of brightness, they are misering the day while mine delays away in chores left to do. The soup, the bath, the fire, then bedtime, up the stairs. And there, there, the buttery curls, the light, the bran fur of the teddy bear, the fist like a nighttime daisy, damp and tight. Today, Peter and myself want to talk about a collection of stories forthcoming from the Stinging Fly Press, a brilliant press that we've both been really enjoying. And we'd like to thank Declan Mead for sending this book on. The writer is Philip O'Chialig. He was born in Waterford in March 1968. He's an Irish short story writer, translator. He's travelled widely. He spent much of his adult life in Eastern Europe, starting in Russia in the early 1990s. And since 1995, he's lived mostly in Romania, currently he lives in Bucharest with his daughter and he says that he moved to Bucharest so that he could live cheaply and pursue his desire to write. Not a bad idea, I think. He's published over 40 short stories as well as essays and criticism and his work has appeared in Granta, the Irish Times and the Los Angeles Review of Books and he's been translated into more than a dozen languages. And of course, 
writers don't write to win awards, but it is nice when they do. And Philip O'Kealig has won the Hennessy Award for his first published work in 1998, the Rooney Prize for Irish Literature for his collection Notes from a Turkish Whorehouse in 2006. And he was the first Irish writer to be shortlisted for the Frank O'Connor International Short Story Award. His collection of stories, Notes from a Turkish Whorehouse, won the 2006 Glenn Dimplex New Writers Award. And his second collection, The Pleasant Light of Day, was shortlisted for the Frank O'Connor International Short Story Award. And he was the first Irish writer to receive this honour. He's received loads of praise. Uh, from my reading of his stories, I, I find I find them so interesting. But I'm going to turn to Peter first. And I'm going to say, Peter, you've been reading, reading away his stories everywhere I go. I see you with them. And I was just wondering what do you make of the stories no i find them very interesting i mean i mean a lot of the uh, stories are actually about the process of, of writing and they feature the same kind of characters and the protagonist is often I, I suppose a version of the writer a man living alone dedicated to writing uh, living alone with his daughter in various kind of crumbling apartments in in bucharest and bucharest very much features in in the stories as as well, so very often that's you know the, the the bits are falling, plasters falling off the walls, water's pouring in, the writing isn't going very well. There's a sense of kind of brooding failure and and difficulty at the same time. The kind of the huge effort of just maintaining life, of fixing things and repairing apartments and making things work and cleaning and cooking are, are there a lot. Just facing the day, facing up to what has to be done, if you like, being a man about manly tasks, and it's very much, you know, it's a book. Um, that foregrounds the experience of men and a man in particular and kind of relationships between the sexes are often problematic, if not <laughs> positively toxic at, at, at times. Um, so a lot of the stories are linked uh, as, as well. We see these characters at different stages in, in their relationships, you know, stories like my life in the movies or my life in the city. So the protagonists often, you know, they're very strongly kind of resemble each other. They're versions really of the same figure a lot of the time. Yeah, I mean, I found this this collection of stories really absolutely riveting. I loved, just to go back to the title of it as well, Peter, the title Trouble. I liked that idea that trouble does follow each character throughout the book. Isn't that right? I, I think it does. Uh, take the opening story, for instance. I once owned a house in Bucharest, she tells us. So we're wondering immediately, why the past tense? What happened? And then he goes on to explain, this is how it happened. And at the end of the last century, I was working in Dublin for a security company on night shifts. I guarded a distillery. And on Friday mornings, not to give too much away, he goes to collect his pay package um, at the back of a strip club. And um, he meets an, a man in his 50s who's reading 100 Years of Solitude. And I liked the humour in some of the stories. He's reading The uh, the Death of Ivan Illich, uh, the novella by Tolstoy. And, and they strike up eventually a kind of conversation which does lead to trouble and it does lead to the character having to escape and run away to Bucharest. He's in big trouble, isn't he, Peter? Oh, he is. Yeah, in, in that's where he's in, he's in deep, he's, he's in deep trouble. But, you know, I think that it's, the humour is often very dark. And I mean, I, cause I like, I like the prose of, of this. I mean, I just, I was going to just going to read a couple of random examples that, you yeah. know, from that, that opening. Um, story and it's a, you know, it's a very kind of disillusioned view of Dublin. You know, the character is working as a night watchman, as you say, and, you know, he's, he's, he has to do these various kind of driving jobs. Whatever people will tell you, Dublin isn't a pretty city. He says, all you need to see is the squalling seagulls and the stink of the port at dawn to know there's something putrid in the fibre of the place that no number of Trinity students with coloured scarves will balance out, you know, uh, or another sentence kind of, 
In the same manner, waves of chemical hides shudder through the city, amphetamine flickers like forked lightning in the sky, followed by lulls of flat exhaustion and the nightmare anxiety that nobody ever mentioned. You know, it's like, it's, it's, his prose is one of the things for me that, is, that's, that stands out apart from, yeah. apart from the kind of, you know, the situations and the prose that is, you know, kind of darkly humorous, kind of funny, witty. Yeah, I think I was really struck by the writing and that's what just made, blew me away, really. I just thought here is a real writer and I was absolutely thrilled to be reading it. Um, O'Kealik himself was reared in, in Waterford in the countryside with his three siblings and his father's from Dublin, his mother's from Newry. He's described his childhood as kind of solitary. I'd spent a lot of time on my own reading books. I didn't integrate very well. So it sounds very much like a lot of writers I know, but I thought you were, ju- you were just reading there a bit about the description of Dublin and he's as good as writing about Dublin as he's, he is about writing about Bucharest. But he's also, I think, in a story like Smoke, really good at going back into rural Ireland. Um, he, the character is 17. His name is Space, yep. uh, short, shorthand for Spaceman. He's living in rural Ireland. And there is, again, you're talking about the dark humour. There's definitely humour in this story. He's 17. All his family have gone off to see the moving statues in Mount Mellory. <laughs> and he's left at home, uh, falls off the motorbike. Uh, there's a huge unexpectedness to this story, to where it takes that. you. I love that bit. He comes home to his house at night on the, on the motorbike. I think he's he's kind of, he thinks he's dead, but he, he kind of, he's, he has survived. He walks up the driveway to the house and he looks at the house and everybody's gone. And he kind of has this vision that this is what it's going to be like in the future. He imagines his own, um, you know, kind of life ended and his all of the life around him ended and the house has become a ruin, you know, and it's just kind of, kind of like haunting vision of, 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 do you, know, yeah. do, you know, do you know what I mean? Yeah, uh, yeah, I've actually found that piece actually yeah. because it's a piece that I noticed that you'd underlined and so would I actually. Um, he says, my parents, he's talking about the house and he says, my parents would be gone for it, from it. My brothers and sisters would be gone. The old trees would be cut down. The roof would fall in and a tree would grow from the floorboards in the room where my parents had slept. Everything before me now that was whole would be undone and I would live to see it. I thought that was great the way I was actually thinking about that story a lot because I like that idea that he's writing about many things, but he has these kind of philosophical asides. And it was interesting to me uh, to, to learn as well that he actually studied philosophy um, when he went to college. So you can see that in the kind of philosophical. Well, the character in Smoke is studying, he's studying the Bagbad Vita and, he's, and he quotes it at the guards before they chase him across fields. I'm highly insulted. Yeah, that's that's brilliant, actually. He's been chased by the guards. He ends up in a ditch with the frogs. Uh, it's just a very intriguing story. I think the sign of a great story as well is that it stays with you. The way the stories, for me anyway, I love the stories of Chekhov and Hemingway and Dostoevsky. And it turns out so does Okyalik. And, um, you know, that he, he has said somewhere that he's very, um, you know, influenced by them as, as well as by Turgenev. And also he said Jack Kerouac. So, um, I think that the, these stories, these great stories stay with you. And so do the stories in this collection. Yeah. I mean, there's another, like one thing that struck me, I mean, because I was saying that a lot of the time you feel they're, you know, they're, they're, they feature writers, they're about writing in some way, but they're also about, you know, there's a kind of bleakness or a kind of loneliness or a certain, you know, it, it, the, the the nature of the relationships I find interesting. Like 
it's you know because he's he's, he's he, you know there's a lot of sex he's, he's writing about men and women but he's very it, it, you know it's often very unsatisfactory because the main characters what they really want is space and uh, you know there's a story there's a story for instance where the protagonist gets a, an apartment and it's empty and he loves it he loves he loves the, the emptiness of it and he's sleeping in a, uh, on a on a mattress in the apartment and he gets a girlfriend and the girlfriend fills the apartment with stuff mm. wardrobes and shoes and and all of that and eventually he feels that he can't stay there anymore he, he has to leave so he, he he ends up staying with the barman in a, in a solitary kind of uh, tiny little little flat but you know that kind of sense that mm. he, there's a there's a restlessness about about these stories all the time yeah there is um i agree with that and sex sometimes not just between men and women, also sex between monkeys. Do you remember that story, Island? Um, I mean, that story really stayed with me. I was talking about stories that stay with you. Um, he's, he goes to an island, which I was reading and thinking, oh my God, I'd love to go there. And he's left by the old man. And he says he's left with a large jar of cloudy olive oil, a big sack of rice, cornmeal and beans, a large duty demijohn of red wine and several bottles of regia. I'm hoping, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And there's a hammock and the hammock is really important. So he lies in the hammock drinking away. And the opening of this story is so startling. Peter, will I read it? Are we allowed to have sex on books for breakfast? Monkey sex, off you go, yeah. So he's on the hammock. I was woken by the scraping of their claws on the flagstones and saw them there in the dusky light as though through smoke, these little creatures that wouldn't have come up as high as your knee, copulating. I remained absolutely still. If I moved, they would take fright, scarper back into the undergrowth, back into the falling night. They were some kind of animal, some kind of monkey with long tails, yet they had curiously beautiful faces and impossibly large eyes, hers long-lashed with high arching brows. She was on all fours, making tiny, panting noises, something between a sigh and a squeak. She danced and sang it, grinding him, grinding her teeth, grinding it out, He was on his knees, spine arched and head thrown back, arms limp, pendulums grazing his ankle, the rest of his body taut, straining towards where he was hooked. They might have been tiny humans if you forgave the tales. Um, Absolutely riveting writing, isn't it, Peter? Yeah, and there's very different kinds of stories as well. I mean, that's, you know, like there's, there isn't just a single style. I mean, a lot of them do resemble each other um, and they have the same sort of plot and same sort of characters and style. But then there's also one with the, you know, the title like, like First Love and you're expecting this kind of love story. And it's actually based on the diary of an Austrian war criminal, you, you know, so it's, it's just, it's describing, um, the murder of, of Jews in Poland and, and, and the Ukraine. But it's done with this kind of extraordinary sort of detachment. I mean, as if on the one hand, he's describing his relationship with his beloved Trudchen, um, next time he's casually kind of describing executions that he's been uh, asked to carry out. And it's almost as if there's no difference between the, the, the different parts of his life. I mean, he, he describes both. Everything is, is, is kind of in this sort of strange routine. Um, and it's chilling. It's a chilling story. It's actually, I didn't realize until the end that he, cause he based it on the actual diaries of, um, a man called Felix Landau, I think. Um, but that's, you know, so that's a, a very different kind of story yeah. with, within that. Yeah. There is, I think, um, a brutality to the stories. Um, and I keep using the word intriguing, but that, that does intrigue me as well. And you're saying that there's different kind of stories, different themes going on. Yeah. Uh, one of the stories that 
I think kind of stood out because it was a bit different, uh, was Deadbeat. It's the story of an old man and a father who can't stop crying. And then he meets his deadbeat son in a park who insists on bringing him to a hospital. He doesn't want to go. And really, I thought the story was, what are the gifts that we bequeath our children? Well, Philip O'Kealley asks this in the story. Um, and he raises questions about parenthood because a lot of the stories are about parenthood as well, aren't they, Peter? They are. So at the, the end of this story says, the patient attention you give a child, so it will go, grow strong. Is that the one sure gift that even one such as me, knowing nothing could have given? I wonder at the gifts I've distributed. They have not been the finest quality. I close my eyes and press my cheek against the cold, rough stone and regard my remaining time. That's the old man speaking there at the end of that story. Yeah, that comes up again and again. That kind of, like, there's a very strong relationship between the father and daughter in these stories very often. And, but one of the ideas is that the love that you have for a child increases all the time, whereas the love you have for the person who gave birth to the child, maybe, um, doesn't. And, uh, you know, so, so there's that very, very much kind of, yeah. you know, the, the different, the different kinds of love. Yeah, I suppose. But in the deadbeat story, I mean, his son absolutely really annoys him. And I think that's, there is a humour in that story as well. Again, highly memorable. So, um, I, I, I suppose overall, I found this story, this collection of stories really refreshing because I found myself in a place I'd never been before. I haven't been to Bucharest. Um, and I found myself very much in the mind. I am going to say it of a male writer. And this was interesting for me as a woman to read it. And as you said, it gives you a very strong perspective of the male writer and, and what he wants and the, the many kind of troubles of the title and disasters that he finds himself in. Now, there's lots, there's lots of great stories. It's ones ones I'll go, ones I will go back to, like the, the one that finishes the book, Dead Dog, is another one of the really interesting kind of Bucharest stories. Just uh, nothing much happens in it, you know. Mm. A friend of the narrator is sick. Um, you know, there's a dog has got into the basement and died and it stinks. And so, the, you know, it's a problem that has to be dealt with, you know. And, and so, so, so it's kind of small things, small stories, but he makes a huge amount out of those small things and he and he he pays attention to everything. That's, that's what I like as well. Yeah. And speaking of dogs, actually, dogs appear in a few of the stories, don't they? There's a, um, another story called London and the dog is called After Jack London's sure. Stories. And that's actually a very mysterious story. I was really shook up after reading that story. I uh, didn't expect what was going to happen. Um, so overall, Peter, what do you think? Would you recommend this collection of stories Absolutely. to people? Absolutely, I would. Absolutely, I would. I mean, I don't actually, I haven't actually read the other, the other, the other collections that makes so I realise I have to go ahead and now and do that. So no, I would, I would, I would very much recommend this, this book. Yeah. So it's Philip O'Kealig's Trouble, a collection of new stories. Um, and I really think that they, they are fantastic. And I'd like to thank again, Declan Mead and thank the Stinging Fly for bringing these out because they're brilliant stories to read. So do get a copy. They'll be out soon from the Stinging Fly Press. Thanks for listening. One of the hardest parts about writing a book is, for me, is not the the poems themselves, but it's the doing a draft for the, the text on the back of the book, which a publisher usually wants you to get, have a shot at uh, to say what the book is about. And that, that like, what ensues is a, is a week of crisis and self-examination. Um, and it, it's really just the worst thing. I think a lot of authors really hate doing that kind of text. And I think what the way I work, I suppose a lot of other people do, is you're, 
you're just kind of following your nose most of the time. You're you're kind of tapping along to you know what's going on around you, and you pick up a rhythm here, or a smell, or an image, or something like that, and you go, yeah, I reckon I can squeeze a few lines out of that. And then after a few years, you have a pile of these things, and you think, well. Um, they're supposed to be about something. They're supposed to have a theme. But I really, I the best I could do on that is to say that you know I'm fifty something. Um, I there's there's lots of kind of midlife stuff in it. The way that 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 your perspective changes uh, on the world around you, on yourself when you when you go to the next phase like that. It is. I suppose also, I would hope, alert to the way kind of languages play through our lives. And I translate, and translation is um, not just um, something I do, you know, translate poems from Czech into English, but it's also something I do in my daily life. It's like there are two languages constantly around me. I suppose that the closest analogy in Ireland would be Irish speakers um, who live constantly live in a bilingual world, and you, that that affects your imagination very deeply. You see kind of angles, colours, things you wouldn't have seen otherwise, because you're constantly toggling between these, not between two languages, but between two ways of thinking about the world and looking out at things. And that was Justin Quinn talking about his recent collection of poems, Shallow Seas, published by Gallery Press. And just by way of introduction to Justin, he was born in Dublin and educated at Trinity College. He lives in Prague, where he teaches at the University of Western Bohemia in the Czech Republic. He's published five collections with the Gallery Press, including Fuselage, Waves and Trees, Close Quarters, Early House, and Shallow Seas, which which came out towards the end of last year. Uh, but he also published two collections, The Ua Bird and Privacy, uh, with Carcanet Press in the UK. And he's written a number of books of criticism, including the Cambridge Introduction to Modern Irish Poetry and Between Two Fires, Transnationalism and Cold War Poetry. He's also a translator of Czech poetry. Uh, his translations include... Peter Borkovich from The Interior, Selected Poems, 1995-2005, which was published by Seren, and also those of Bohuslav Reinek, The Well at Morning in 2017. His poetry has appeared very widely. The Yale Review, New York Review of Books, Poetry Review, Irish Times, New Yorker, Poor Journal Review, many, many journals. And he published a novel, Mount Merion, in 2013. Many might know him as the founding editor of the poetry journal Meter. But we're here today to talk about that that most recent collection which came out last year and the first thing I did was to ask him to read a poem from it Heart Song I see the deer long after it sees me kept breathing by inhibitors and fibrates beyond my natural span both our pulse rates ramp up around now I'll bet that he or she is reckoning I might stop it, its heart with lead Surviving even longer on its flesh. I'll bet my presence is enough to flush it to the woods with something, much like dread. But for a while we're here, stock still, alone, except for swarms of polyphonic insects. It lays down beats to do with dying and sex. Beats I can't hear, I only hear my own. We've got no lyrics yet, although the song is old as our two species. And do we need some new ones now? 
So it gives a nod, kind of, before it flings itself headlong into the piney shadows, startling birds. The forest murmurs something now and again. I take my pills years after it has gone and hang around here trying to catch the words. Like all of this poet's work, Shadowsteys is a very achieved collection, formal yet playful, at the same time relaxed and edgy, reflective and challenging. It's a book of very long perspectives, mingling geological and historical time, a constant reminder of human puniness, even while often also a celebration of human persistence, courage, creativity and intimacy. You have the feeling, reading many of these poems, that our roots are somehow shallow, that we can easily be unmoored from our present time and circumstance. A feeling expressed, for example, in a poem set in a Dresden museum where the speaker says, I feel ripped open. These statues standing there in twisting draughts of heat have sucked me in to their events, the lifted hand, the hair in waves swung by the horse turning on a plinth, the moment that decides their day. So I wondered, is this a book about feeling ripped open? Um, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say. I mean, certainly um, as we're kind of ripped open constantly by all the news that keeps coming in. And, you know, there's, uh, there's a sense that if you let yourself float out upon the world, lots of bad news is going to come. But I, I suppose I was also like a lot of people looking for consolation. And that's where the, the geological perspective, like sometimes cosmic perspective, sets you at ease that really none of, none of this matters very much, um, although it might feel that way at the time. There are a lot of you know things that keep coming up again and again, and and that are very interesting. I mean, you know, I mean, just the title, for instance, "Shallow Seas" is a phrase which which recurs a, a couple of times. And I'm just wondering, I mean, what exactly does the notion of of, of shallow seas kind of kind of mean to you? What's the, what's the significance of these shallow seas? I'm a really poor geologist. I, I can never remember the names of all the different periods, and I mix them up horribly. But I did. I do know that, like where I live in Prague in the suburbs, was covered by shallow seas, and that was a very strong image. That uh, the, the feeling, because we're, we're our, our apartment building is on sandstone, and so this was a seabed. Um, at one stage, and it's it's a fascinating idea that you had meters and meters of water above you. Well, thankfully, I did not coincide with the sea, but that was going through my mind. And then on the other end of that, there is it's a very strong image in current ecological discourse that that the seas are going to come back in certain part of our developed lands and they they have been here and they might come again and I suppose so it's like looking back to that ghost of the shallow seas and the possible possibly the ones that are we're looking yeah. at in the future the book opens with a sequence platform I think it kind of very much sets the tone for the kind of explorations that will characterize the rest of the book. I mean, that sense of those multiple layers of time, you know, a Hallstatt culture mingling with a contemporary murder, accountants, teachers, mobsters, dog walkers on the, on the table hill where the poem is set, the vanished Senomanian sea, a, a kind of ghostly presence. And it strikes me, it's a very popular sort of place. The living and the dead are crowding in. I mean, you mentioned ghosts, but you have property developers, whale remains, ancient shellfish. And sometimes that long perspective can be 
comic. I mean, you have people walking Labradors or lobsters like Gerard de Nerval in, in Prague kind of <laughs> walking his lobster or the couple lying down on flowers, our heads blown open by the song that's coming out loud and good up through the ground until it's ours. And anyway, weren't we just saying this is how we should see out the next few million years? It's kind of, it's a very, it's, it's a striking performance, but it also, it's, 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 it kind of touches on so much life, like like the horses at the end, pulsing, watching a while alive, bright edges of those dark shells of, of clay. I mean, it feels like a kind of, I don't know, kind of like a breakthrough in lots of ways. I mean, as I was saying, it's very much does set the tone for the rest of the book. And I'm interested in how that, that sequence, that poem came about. Well, near, nearby where we live, there's a kind of Table Hill that was settled possibly by Celts. I, I didn't milk the Irish connection, possible Irish connection there for the, for this one. But, and this, it's, it's a fascinating hill because during the 19th century, poor people used to scratch away into the hill to make places to live. And they were actually probably bedding down beside trilobites. There's an awful lot of trilobites in the land around here in, in the sedimentary rock. So um, that, that, that kind of made something flicker in my head, that sense of coincidence, proximity, as you said, like crowdedness, that yeah. um, the things that are were there in the past, they're, they're, they're really never gone. They're, they're always kind of inching and edging their way around our imagination. And so that, that hill became a kind of focus for a lot of that stuff. And like also, as you said, there's, there's kind of comic meetings as well. Yeah. When, you, when everyone crowds together, there's, it can be uncomfortable, but it can also be yeah. weirdly fun. And I was kind of happy. I tried to play that out a bit in the rhymes. I was stuck for a rhyme for mobster and I thought well you know mobster is about the only one in the book that I can think of so this and it, it, it worked in the serendipity of these things it, it worked nicely. Do you find that as you get you mentioned you know we get older do you do you, do you find as you get older that the poems become kind of freer in a way or is that just my imagination because there seems to be a sort of kind of like a freewheeling loose kind of quality about a lot of shallow seas and a good bit of comedy. It's hard to say. Like, um, I, I've i been writing in rhyme for, like, basically since I started writing poems in, like, my late teens. And there were certain, especially at the beginning, certain things were difficult for me. Writing an I pentameter was, was, I just couldn't get the line in my head. And so I walked up and down the back garden in uh, suburban Dublin. My parents thought I was bananas. But I was measuring at the... The, trying to kind of beat the rhythm of it into like into my my physical body that and to feel it like the way I breathed and the way I walked and so I think once you do that once you're attracted to that and you have done it for a lot many years it it you stop thinking about it or rather it becomes a way of thinking it becomes a way of breathing and it becomes a way that you go at things you um before Ideas come to you like already kind of rhyming with each other. Um, words are rub up against each other. You catch the rhymes and things, and uh, kind of the poem sometimes unfolds out from that, and not vice versa. You don't sometimes you like at least I don't come with the idea of the poem, the thing I have to express, but it comes through just the weird proximity 
of sounds to each other and you follow the logic of that and see where it leads you. It's interesting to me because I think for certain kinds of poets, uh, that could be a straight lace or that could be yeah. not particularly liberating. Whereas what, what, I'm, what I'm sensing in this or what I'm seeing and what I'm reading is you're able, you're able to be kind of loose and freewheeling and wide ranging while at the same time deploying kind of rhyme constantly. I mean, mean, just an example strikes me as one of my favourite poems in this is The Child of Prague. It's such a familiar image for people in Ireland. You know, praying, praying, you know, praying to the child of Prague, all of that. And here he, here he is. Here, look at, look at you, cooking, cooking up miracles to beat the band. Oh, far out, child of Prague. Oh, lovely cross-dressed lad. You're 500 years old, and you're still breaking the news. They love you most of all in in Ireland. Um, you know, so there is that kind of vein um, that 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 runs through it. Or a poem like Hannah Wilke's um, armpit hair. I mean, where did, where did that come from? With the child of Prague, like I, I, I kind of call him the way my my aunts used to call him, the child of Prague. Uh, yeah. They used to refer to that, and I, I really don't know. I remember sitting down thinking I should write. My, my aunt likes the child of Prague, as she calls him, and I thought I'd write one for her. And something of the fun, I suppose, of talking to her, which is is always great fun, kind of spilled into the poem, and you, you really. You're never really prepared for this. Like about halfway through writing the thing, I realized I was kind of half possessed and I couldn't let go and I was oblivious to all around me, which is, you know, a state of feeling that a lot of people like. With the Hannah Pilka, Hannah. Wilka's armpit hair, I suppose a lot of what was on my mind then was a lot of the talk about gender, about sexuality um, that has been animating so much discourse um, over the past 10 years so intensely. And I wanted to like reflect upon my own sexuality, but also the way that she presented hers through artistic representation really way before her time in the 90s and in an amazingly like beautiful and provocative way and so i also just wanted to pay to pay honor to that nature is everywhere apart from the large geological perspectives forests greenery urban nature street weeds you have a sequence in fact with that name called street weeds and you have all of these you know like ryegrass and chicory and dandelion cannabis is in there plantain mugwort yarrow Timothy, I mean, are you a man who goes around noticing nature? I'm pretty terrible. I have to look up the names for these things all the time, and then I forget yeah. them like two days later. But what I am fascinated by, and what this um, this part of the world I live in is great for, is wasteland. You know, you have a massive four decades long social political experiment like communism, and it fails. And what it leaves behind it are an awful lot of urban spaces that are just, you know, in between owners, sometimes for decades, and fantastic things happen there. People move in, very strange people move in sometimes, or they do weird things. And I, myself, my wife just love going, walking through those kind of wastelands in the city. And one of the things that was on my mind, I suppose, when I was writing several of those poems, was just, again, to catch something of the... The, the risk, the fascination with these weird spaces. I mean, I know these are everywhere. They're they're all around the US, they're in Ireland, they're in the UK, mm. but there's a particular texture to them in former communist countries. 
it's like the, it's like the remnants of this utopia lying around um, yeah. in some disaster movie. Like you have, you know, the Statue of Liberty covered in snow in some disaster movie apocalypse one, and that's just that happens. That's every day here. Place is obviously important to you. I mean, I mean, the places around you, the places in what's now kind of Czechia. I think of poems like like two sentinels of what we call Pilsen, but. You know, like the sweep of history, the two statues observing the kind of march of armies, tower blocks and bombs, the rivers coming across the plain, the ironworks, the whole kind of panoply of social and industrial history. I mean, that's all important as well, isn't it? That, yeah, yeah. The University of West Bohemia is in Pilsen, and so I, I go down there. And it's Those are, that, that, that big industry has been around here for a very long time from the late 19th century on and you know so there's layer upon layer of it it's not just something that has been dropped in a brownfield but it's it's been here for generations and yeah. it's been built and it's fall, fallen down it's been rebuilt and those layers of humanity the generations of workers in these places the way that they you know the weeds grow out of some of the buildings that are disused you have birch saplings coming from the roofs that, that, that's just marvelous stuff Obviously, you've been in Prague for a long time now, and it's a place that you found yourself in. I know you say almost by accident, but you said you said once in an interview that I found myself in Prague in the early 1990s, largely because Ireland at the time was a frustrating place for someone in their early 20s. So I leave and I'm in a country whose language I barely speak, a literary culture I barely know, and I start to find ways around the problems. And those hacks or temporary fixes then slowly become a life a way of living. I, I can think, some I think of Kavanaugh's statement about poetry, you, you, you dabble in it and it becomes a life, but also you dabble yes. in a place and it becomes a life too. So you're obviously now you're immersed in it and, you're, and your family's there and it's their place and it's very much, oh, yeah. Yeah. it's your, it's, 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 it's your place um, now as well, isn't it? I mean. Yeah, totally, totally. I mean, I'm, I'm like completely at home here and my wife is Czech. Our boys are uh, like supposed to be half Czech, half Irish, but I think really the, the Czech has got the upper hand. I've been very bad. I mean, I like teaching them about Ireland. I know some expat friends, they're very good about teaching like an American friend. He teaches his children the different states of America. I don't know what the state capitals are and stuff like that. And I, I feel so bad about that. I, I, I should at least teach them the national anthem. I don't know. What... You're not up there early morning teaching them Irish and the tin whistle. And, and <laughs> but it's a really interesting question though what what is what do you need to teach people what is the essence of ireland is there a kind of package that the ministry of foreign affairs has for people like me of like essential facts about ireland to teach your kids that there isn't one it's so hard i mean they basically go back to ireland and get spoiled by their grandparents and that's, yeah. <laughs> that's their connection with ireland it's tato crisps and lots of tv and yet, I mean, because because I mean, you are obviously because you're obviously still emotionally involved with both places. I mean, for instance, there is a long sequence in the book towards the at the end of the book, the metals, mm-hmm. and you know, anybody in in Dublin or at Dunleary Way will know of the metals, the old kind of funicular railway of of Dunleary, where you can still kind of walk. And so, I'm kind of interested in me because it shows a real attachment to that specific place, a mm-hmm. kind of a mix of yearning and celebration. Um, yeah, definitely. You know, kind of interested in that because, you know, there's two successive kind of bits in that poems within that. And my soul, that begin with, and my soul magnifies. And my soul magnifies the lovely haze across the bay on brighter evenings. That was in one and then in the other one it was, and my soul magnifies the shocking days of spring unfolding varicolored 
petals. It's a it's not a kind of it's a kind of a psychic homecoming almost. Yeah, um, I, I I pride myself in not missing Ireland at all, and I tell everyone I'm totally happy here, and I am completely. But then it catches you unawares. I find myself like some the odd time when I'm back in Dublin, and I just take a stroll down by the sea, and I'm just like kind of blown open by it um i it's it's kind of so deep in the hard wiring um that i'm hardly aware of it from one year to the next and then i i, I don't know how this works um like i i make notes about it i write poems about it what it means in the larger scheme of things i really have no idea but it is, but i know that it is there are certain locales in ireland especially where i grew up around Black Rock, Deliri, um, mm-hmm. those kind of places, um, they're still awfully deep in me. And I suppose what that means is that they, they're kind of like the, the blueprint for your imagination. You kind of fit everything else you find in the world if you go living abroad. You fit it into that template. And you try to see, like, it, it's it's kind of like an imaginative framework that places childhood uh, homes give you, I think. That's, that's the only way I can explain it to myself. Sure. So this is a few parts of the poem, Forest Songs. I walk into the woods for nothingness, for rest. But pulling on what rots the sugars of the forest go racing from the roots. I walk into the woods beyond the big box stores. There's old upholstery placed for sleeping under stars near the dumpster waste. I walk into the woods and deer freeze where they stand. I freeze as well and stare like I'm all zen or stoned, like I'm not even there. I walk into the woods 300 million years back. Ferns, colossal rule. And this whole tract secures three cents of fossil fuel. I walk into the woods with my young son and show him how sapwood is yay wide, how xylem and how flown then die into heartwood. I walk into the woods. I'm better by the hour. Not much light inside, but herbs send through the air a waves of fight inside. I walk into the woods, the blossoms spreading wider. Larkspur, buttercup, everywhere the water in gallons going up. The second part of this of this challenge is the is a toaster challenge where you get a couple of minutes, as long as it takes for us to char a slice of toast, <laughs> to talk about a book that has resonated with you in some way. So I'm kind of interested to see what, what your choice is for this. After World War One ended in 1918, a country came into existence that was made out of the leftover bits of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and it was called Czechoslovakia. It was industrially advanced, and it was a democratic republic. Its upper class was elegant and cosmopolitan. They spoke several languages, French, German, Czech, a bit of English. And, and over one shoulder, they looked to Vienna as the former imperial capital. And thankfully, they couldn't see what lay ahead in 1939. And then after that, four decades of communism. The author of the book, Living on Yesterday, Edith Templeton, was born into this upper-class society, first part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and then it became the Republic of Czechoslovakia after 1918. And she was multilingual. 
very cosmopolitan, travelled around, family very rich. And this is the world it's set in. She, like many high societies, someone is trying to get in. And there's also somebody trying to get out. And these two people meet and they provide the plot structure for the whole book, which is a marriage plot. By getting married, each of them, each of their desires will be fulfilled. And the, the book is it's really funny. It's biting satire. It's like Joseph, but it's also nostalgic. It's nostalgic in the way that uh, Joseph Roth's Radetzky March is nostalgic, full of mm. love and tenderness for bygone time. But it's also very funny. I think like P.G. Woodhouse is, is is great about the English upper classes, kind of like a hard edge, but like tender nevertheless. And so one of the big gala events in the book is that when a very rich banker is having a party to introduce his daughter to society and this you know she, she works at all the levels from the the banker and his friends and associates down to the, the chef he's a celebrity chef of the day he's he's very vain but he also as the caterer he steals a lot of the produce that he orders for the for the event and she does very well the kind of jostling to get the best cuts of meat on the trestle tables etc she describes the chef she says like all good chefs he was as he was as vain as a prima, prima donna, as sensitive as a mimosa, and as easily roused to anger as a turkey. Now, Edith Thompson was her first and second languages were German and Czech. Um, but she wrote it in English because she moved to England, married an Englishman just before the Second World War. And all her work, her novels were written in English. She wrote a lot of journalism for The New Yorker. So she's this is a woman who's writing in her third language and putting most of us to shame who write in their first. So that, that so my recommendation is Living on Yesterday by Edith Templeton. A very kind of interesting choice. I mean, because I, because I had I, I had never heard of her, and I think I mean, is she somebody? I, I did. I, I read a very interesting interview actually with her from I think it was the New York Times, where they sent a reporter to see her. She was living in this kind of fairly obscure kind of Italian town yeah. in in her eighties, uh, and and an extraordinary kind of feisty and interesting kind of character. But she had led this amazing life, and you know, kind of kind of aspiring to high society and kind of company in England and stuff. And, and yet she was this kind of you know foreigner, but she but but you know with this kind of as you say multilingual background and so on. But is she somebody who is? I mean, how does how does she stand today? Do people uh, remember the work? Is the work available? No, like I have an old Hogarth edition paperback from the 1980s um, with an introduction by Anita Bruckner, another novelist who I think is really fantastic and is not getting her uh, fair share of attention. You would think that like Czechs would be proud of her, but because she writes in English, she's kind of left to one side. There's a strong sense here that to be part of Czech literature you have to write in the language. And and similarly, on the other side, perhaps in the US and like further field, people think, well, she's a Czech writer, so they can look after her back home. So I think she really falls between two stools. And it's, But I think now, as things are loosening up a bit with those kind of categories that you have to belong to a particular nation and to be like part of its canon. Um, I think, you know, maybe the Templeton's time is coming. I hope it is anyway. So that's Edith Templeton's Living on, on Yesterday. And that was Justin Quinn talking about it. And Justin Quinn was also talking about his new book, Shallow Seas, published by Gallery Press.
We, I think we've reached the end of our Books for Breakfast podcast this morning. I'm definitely rushing off to have more coffee. And I'm Enda Wiley and I have Peter Sarah here with me. And Peter, would you like to tell everyone about the details of the podcast if they'd like to listen again? Well, you can subscribe at all the usual sources, Google and Apple and so on. And if you want to check out the notes that go along with this podcast, you can go to booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. And yeah, so... We'll be back again next Thursday morning. We'll have the toast on. We'll have the kettle boiling. We will have more books to discuss. And we're looking forward to having you here. So goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.